We are learning Daf Mem Tes. We're starting from the bottom of Mem Ches Amid Beis, about 10 lines up from the bottom where the Gemara says Tana. So we've been talking about Masar Avl Shluche Habal, how a woman comes in Nesua, she becomes a fully married woman even before the Chapal occurs, but as soon as she's given over to the Shluchma of the husband. So the Bryce says, Masar Avl Shluche Habal, Vizinsa. What happens if she's Mizana after that point? So the, the difference between an Arusa who is Mizana, she, if she's an Ara, she gets Skila, but if she is a Nesua, she only gets Chenek. So the question is, when does she become a Nesua? Then now the punishment will only be Chenek. So we're saying that if she's Mizana after she was given over to the husband's Shluchim, then it's only Chenek as opposed to the stoning. So we're saying that she's no longer viewed as an Arusa. Says in immediately, how do we know that with Masar Av Shluchabal? She's now going to be considered a Nisua that the punishment will only be Chenek. Amar Bami Abarchama Amar Kra, Liznos Beisavia. When the Torah is talking about uh, how there's the punishment for adultery is the stoning. If she's an Arusa, it says if she commits adultery by her father's house. So if the whole point is by her father's house, that will exclude the case where the adultery occurred after she was already given over to the agents of the husband. Maybe the Pasuk is only coming to exclude a case where she did chuppah but didn't have beer with her husband. Then she committed adultery. At least there was a chuppah. But if there was no chuppah at all, and it was only that she was given over to the Shulchei Baal, how do we know that's true? Because we already know that once a girl does chuppah, then she's considered an Asua and the punishment is chanek. Where? Because the Pasuk says, when the Torah talks about the punishment of Skila for the Nara Ma'arasa who does adultery, it says, if you have a Nara Basula who's Ma'arasa Le'ish, so we expound. Nara, the fact that it says Nara, the implication is Velo Bulgaris, not a fully mature girl. Basula, if it says Basula Velo Bulu, now she already had Bia. Ma'arasa, if it says that she's only betrothed, Velo Nesua, it excludes a girl fully married. So we conclude our proof, my Nesua, what does it mean fully married, that she gets Chanak and not, and not stoning? Elam and Nesua, Mamash, if you say fully married, meaning she already did um, a full a full chuppah and everything, and she also did bia. That can't be. If she already had bia, then clearly she's already excluded because the pasuk says The pasuk must be referring to where she did a chuppah and didn't have bia, so she's still a virgin. But the pasuk is saying once the chuppah was done, so now the punishment is no longer going to be stoning. The punishment will only will, will be only chenek. So I already see from that pasuk that next little chuppah. Gets only chenek. So this pasuk that we're looking at, Elizabeth's base of the then we're going to apply to say even Masra Avlo Shulchabal. At that point already, it's only going to be chenek from now on. Says the Gemara. General question: We're saying once the father, once it's Masra Avlo Shulchabal. So now from this point and on, she's viewed as an Asua. So maybe that's only true while she's by. Uh, while she's in that process of being given over to her husband. But let's say at some point she goes back and she says, you know what, let me go back to my father's house. Maybe now she reverts back to being only in Arusa. How do I know it's, it, it, that it's permanent? How do I know that maybe, uh, how, do I, how do I know that once it's given over, now it's permanently in Nesua and uh, she's never going to return back into the jurisdiction of her father? Maybe once she decides to go back to her father, now automatically she just reverts to the status of being uh, an Arusa just like her fa- in her father's house. So Amarava, Hahu, regarding this question, it's already been decided by the Bryce from Rabbi Shmuel's Yeshiva, it says in the Bryce, from Rabbi Shmuel's Yeshiva. So we're talking about here the idea of Hataris Nadar. So again, the way it works is for a girl that's under the jurisdiction of her father, the father annuls the vows. 
when it's a husband, the husband annuls the vows. So we have a pasuk that says, "Nether grusha." Let's say a woman was married, but then widowed or divorced. Kol asher asher al nashri kumalavs, and then nobody's going to be able to annul it um, because she's in her own jurisdiction. So once she makes an edder, it's going to be binding. So matam alamar, what's the chiddush here that if you have a widow or divorcee who takes a vow, it's binding? Obviously, once she's been fully married and now the marriage is over, so she's excluded from the category of a father and from the category of a husband. I mean, obviously, she's not under either of their jurisdictions. Ella, what do you have to say? It was coming to... And Pasuk is coming to resolve the following Suffolk. If the father of the bride gave her over to the husband's agents. Or the father's agent gave her over to the agents of the husband. So at that point, you already have that she left the father's jurisdiction. And then she's widowed or divorced right on the way before even Chuppah happened. You didn't know which Pasuk. I don't know what to read. Meaning, you wouldn't know what happens here. The bride was talking, saying, what if she took the vow after she's given over but before the Chuppah, the husband died or divorce her. So now what happens? Could she remain in the house of her of the father? Could she go back to her father's house? And could the father now now annul the vow? Which one is it? Base of Should I say that she left her father's house, but she didn't go to her husband? So now she goes right back to her father's house, and therefore the father can annul it. Maybe no, she's already permanently in the house of her husband, and if the husband cannot be made for so then no one will be able to be made for her. comes to tell you exactly this point. Once, even for one moment, she exited the father's jurisdiction, he's never going to be able to be made for her again. So we see from here that there's a sense of permanence. It's now permanently she's out of the father's jurisdiction. Even if she decides to go back to his house, she's not going to be considered under him and for example he won't be able to be made for the nidar okay so we've established that the adultery changes um, the punishment for the adultery is no longer stoning it's 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 chenek. and we also establish this other point that it's permanent at that point so now the Gemara goes back to the first point that it's chenek after Masar Abba Shulcha Ba'al. Amar Papa for 9.19, we see from the Mishnah, Ha'ba'al and Ara Ma'oraswa, someone who, is, who has Bia with the Nara, who is Ma'oraswa, Eno Chayv, you're not Chayv for the stoning, Ajati Nara, Pesula Ma'oraswa. She has to be a Nara, virgin, and she's betrothed. He bevays of And then we add, and by the way, and she's still in her father's house. So we analyze each of the Mishnah's point in order to develop our proof. Bishlam and Nara, we understand what the Mishnah is saying. This, that she's a Nara, is good. It's coming to say, but not a Bogaris. Pesula, this, that the Mishnah is saying of a virgin, not if she already once had Bia. No, we're also Vlona Sua, that she's betrothed means not if she's fully married. If she's fully married, she already did Chopah, then punishment would only be strangulation. But what is the stipulation here that it's only when she's in her father's house? Must be that the, it's coming to speak about an excluded girl who has already been delivered over to, her, to the husband's agents. And the, the mission is coming to indicate that at that point and on, the punishment would only be Chenek. Another source in the Mishnah, Amar of Nachman, Yitzchak, Afan, and Matini, we see from the Mishnah as well. How about Eshesesh? Someone has Bia with Eshesesh. Kivan Shinechler, Shosabal, and Asuin. As soon as she entered into her husband's domain uh, to finish the marriage, Afa Bishalonivla, even though there was not yet Bia, Habala, Reza Bechenek, someone has Bia with her as Bechenek. So what's it saying? Once she was nichnesot to the Rosh Hashanah, now it's only chenek. Nichnesot to the Rosh Hashanah, when the Mishnah said this language, she comes into the husband's domain, it's mashma in any sort of way. Not necessarily that chuppah, the full chuppah was done. It's saying as soon as there's any kinesis of Rishos, didn't emphasize the chuppah. So it's saying as soon as she was given over to, to the husband, now the chiv is only chenek, even before chuppah, already we see that transition that she becomes like an asua, and therefore it's no longer going to be stoning if she is an adulter, adulteress, but rather it will be um, chenek. 
Okay, now we mentioned, we were talking about what, that a person has to uh, support support his wife. So now the Mishnah says, But a person is not obligated to support his daughter. There's no chiv. And we'll have to figure out why we're speaking about a daughter. What about a son? It's an interesting thing. You have to support your wife. You don't have to support your daughter. This is the language that we darshan up in the Ksuba. In front of the Chalmakarim B'Yavna. It says in the Ksuba, that what happens that the sons that the wife had, they inherit the monies of the Ksuba and the daughters could also be sustained from the husband's property. So these are two different stipulations that are put into Abik Ksuba. First of all, that if the wife dies before the husbands, then any sons born from her marriage have the rights to all the monies from the ksuba. They don't have to share it with a husband's sons from a different marriage. We'll learn all about that later on. So ksuba's been in different. That if the wife didn't ever collected her ksuba and the husband ended up keeping it, so when he dies, her sons are collecting from all those monies. They're not shared with... Um, any sons of a, from a different marriage. And the second thing is that daughters are sustained from the husband's property. After the husband passes away, then the daughters in the marriage are sustained from the property until they, they grow up. So we compare the two halachas. Just as sons don't inherit until after the father dies, that's pretty clear. It, the language is, is that they inherit after the father dies, they inherit the money that their mother would have had in the ksuba. So we make like a correlation here in the language and we say this law that the daughters are, are, are entitled to support is only after the father dies. And that's the irony, but when the father is alive, he actually does not have to support them. And that emphasizes what the mission was saying. There's no technical chiyuv for a father to support his daughter. And it's only after he passes away, then there's the Tanai Yaksuba that, that, that we sell from the estate for them to eat. So first we make a deal. It sounds like a person is only not chayv to sustain his daughter. It sounds like for a son, you are obligated. So that's the first implication the Gemara works with, that it's only the daughter that you're exempt from, the son you're obligated. Another implication, the Mishnah said, is that there's no chol, there's no obligation, but it's mashma that it, there is a mitzvah for such a thing. So we, we make two dukim here. First of all, for a son, there is a chiv. And second of all, even though there's no chiv for a daughter, there still is a mitzvah. It's still the right thing for it to be done. So it says the Gemara, Masisin, who's the Tana here, the Mishnah, who that holds of all these dukim, lower merits. It doesn't sound like Rambi, lower bidu, not rikidu, or It doesn't sound like any of the three. We introduce a bride that records their positions. The Tanya says in a bride, so mitzvah lozen is There's a mitzvah to sustain daughters. And all the more so, there's a mitzvah to sustain sons to ask him a Torah because they're engaged in Torah. So it sounds that it's only considered mitzvah, it's a beneficial thing, but it's not an obligation for both the sons and the daughters. Devri Rebbe Meir, these are the words of Rebbe So it doesn't, it doesn't, the mission definitely doesn't sound like Rebbe Meir because our mission was saying there's no chiv to support the daughter, which we imply that there's a chiv to support the son. According to Rebbe Meir, there's only a mitzvah to support both. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, mitzvah lazan is upon him. There's a mitzvah to sustain the sons of a kavachomer labanos, mishum zilusa, and there's a kavachomer, all the more so, mitzvah to support the daughters, so that because of that, they won't have disgrace. They shouldn't be disgraced if they would have to go begging for food. So, Rameir and Rabbi Yehuda are both agreeing that there's a mitzvah, but no chiv to support both the sons and the daughters. They're just trying to figure out, like, which one has precedence, which one is more important if there's not enough for both. According to Rameir, the more important one, more important one is the sons because they learn. Torah and Rebuto, according to Rebuto, the more important one is of the daughters so that they don't have to suffer any uh, disgrace if they have to beg for food. There's an obligation to sustain the daughters after the father's death. But during the lifetime of the father, both the sons and the daughters are not sustained. It sounds like he's saying there's not even a mitzvah 
to sustain either one while the father is alive. So then clearly the mission is not him. So let's see what we have. Mani Masnisin, so who is our Mishnah? Again, we made two diukim that it's only the Mishnah said a person who's not high of Mzonas Bito, which implied that there is a chi of Mzonas Bino. And second of all, it's Mashma that there was no chi of to support their daughter, but there is a mitzvah. So Mani Masnisin, who's the time of the Mishnah? Iram there, if you want to say it's Ramir Omar, but a mitzvah. He said that with the sons, there's only a mitzvah. The Mishnah implied that the father is mechuyev to support the sons. He rebuked if it's Rabbi Yudah, Amar, Banam, Nami, Mitzvah. It's the same thing. He was saying that for the Banam, it's only a mitzvah, not a chiv. He rebuked if it's He was saying there was not a mitzvah at all, while the father is alive to support them at all. So who then is the author of our Mishnah? So the Gemara is going to have to re- rework through some of those premises that we made, the diukim and the inferences from our Mishnah. We could actually make it be like any of the three Tanam. We could make it like Rameir This is what our Mishnah was saying. A father is not obligated to provide the Mizonas for his daughter. And instead of making the inference, and the same for a son, and in contrast to a son, we actually say, and the same is true for a son. A person does not, there's no obligation to, to sustain either a son or a daughter. There would be a mitzvah to sustain the daughter, and all the more so for the sons who learn. Now, so we now made it very good to be like Rameir. But the problem is when we have to justify why the Mishnah singled out a daughter then. I think Tani Bito, that's that the Mishnah spoke about the daughter as opposed to her son. I want to tell you that even a daughter, it's only that there's no chiv, but there is a mitzvah. And that's a big chiddish because to say that there's a mitzvah for the son who learned that, that that's what we saw, they come first. But the Mishnah is coming to emphasize even a daughter that there's no chiv to support, there still is a mitzvah. So we've now reconciled the Mishnah to be like Rameir. There. For both the son and the daughter, there's no obligation to, to, to feed them, but there is a mitzvah for both. And the mission was coming to be machadish that there is a mitzvah even for the daughters. Again, Rabbi Yudah is a, a bigger chiddush. You have to yeah, that there is a mitzvah for the sons. But this is what the mission is saying. There's no obligation to support the daughter of a kosher kingdom. No, certainly there's no chiyav to provide sustenance for the son. But the implication is ha mitzvah ika. There still is a mitzvah to provide for the sons. Remember, according to Rabbi Yehuda, we would care more about the disgrace for the daughter. So the Mishnah is first saying there's no there's no chiyav from Zonos Bito, and all the more so there's not, there's not going to be a chiyav for the son. Not the implication that there is a chiyav for the son. No, all the more so there's no chiyav for the son, but there would be a mitzvah for the son. And and in Kavachomer, obviously there's a mitzvah for the daughters. This that the Mishnah spoke about daughters, even for the daughters, where we're more concerned for the disgrace, it's only a mitzvah but no obligation. A third shot. There's no obligation for the son or the da- for the daughter, and the same is for the son. The truth is that it's not only that there's no chova, there's no formal obligation. There's not even a mitzvah. Why then did we say there's no chova if there's not even a mitzvah? But since by the daughters after the the death of the father, then it becomes chova after the death. That's when the tanaik suba kicks in. That there, there's a chova to support them from the, from the estate, so then it becomes a chova. That's why we spoke about a chova. We spoke about that there's no chova to support them while he's alive, but it doesn't mean to imply that while he's alive there is a mitzvah to support them. The truth is that while he's alive, there's not even a mitzvah to support them. The reason the Mishnah spoke about eno chova is because of the contrast that once the father dies, now it becomes a formal chova. So bottom line is we have many different approaches here, but it seems that everybody agrees there's no formal chova to support a son or a daughter while the father is married, while the father is alive. 
after the father dies, there becomes a chova to support uh, the daughters from his estate. In terms of mitzvahs, we have many different opinions here. Rabbi Yochum holds there's not even a mitzvah for him to support while, uh, while he's alive, whereas Rameir and Rebuta both hold there, there is a mitzvah for, for, for a father to support his sons and daughters. The question between Rameir and Rebuta is just which one is more priority. According to Rameir, it's the sons so that they learn. According to Rabbi Yehuda, it's, uh, it's the daughters that they're not disgraced. Says the Gemara, this is all but Rabbi Eloi says that things change afterwards in Jewish history. When the basin was in Usha, that was one of the travels, the stops of the Sanhedrin in Usha, they made a special takana. They know you do have to sustain sons and daughters when they are minors. There is a chiyav, as long as they're still considered minors, there's a new chiyav to support them. Says the Gemara, do we pass them like this new takana made in Usha, or do we not? In other words, our mission was saying there's no chiyav. But, but in Usha, Rabbi Lai is claiming they, they came up with a chiv. Do we pass him like Rabbi Lai or not? So Tashimaki, Abu will come to Rabbi Yudah. There were fathers sometimes who weren't supporting the children. They came in front of Rabbi Yudah. Amalu, you would say to them, Yor Yalda. He said, a certain animal can give birth, and then they throw the needs of, of the children on the, on the people of the town. Meaning this is like a, it's a he's like criticizing the, the father for not, for not supporting, for not supporting his, uh, his children. He's trying to like shame him. He's trying to, Embarrass him into in, 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 in getting him to support his children, but he wasn't actually forcing him to do so. He was just using refuge, was just using his words to try to embarrass the father into going ahead and supporting them. So we see that from the fact they didn't actually compel him to do it, that we don't pass him like Rabbi, like, like Rabbi Law, and therefore there is no technical chiv. When fathers who weren't supporting their children came to Rechis, Armaluhi would say to him, Go turn over some sort of stone in the public, get the father up and stand up on the mortar and say, even a raven wants his children, and this father doesn't even want his children, meaning he's trying to embarrass him, shame him. Even for a raven, a raven eventually comes and recognizes and he's compassionate to, to support the child. But you're not even on the level of a raven. You don't want to support your child. So the Gemara now just questions. Is this true that a raven supports a child? Is it true that the raven wants a child? provides food for the young ravens that call out. Meaning that, that their parents don't support them. And the young ravens turn to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and HaKadosh Baruch Hu provides it for them. So it sounds like the raven doesn't support the child. So which one is it? So the Mar says, Lokash, When they're white, then the children are still immature and, Baruch, and their parents don't recognize them. And then HaKadosh Baruch Hu does. And that's why it's Levneor. When they turn dark and blacker and they're immature, then their parents, in fact, um, will support them. Continues the Gemara Kassel. When the father, uh, father was, again, not giving... Money his kids came to Rav. Amalu Rav said, What you want your kids to get from tzedakah? So here again, the idea was that Rav was not compelling the father to, because we don't pass in, even after Takana Tusha, we don't pass in that there was a real chiv to support children. It's only that we try to try to use our words to get the parents to do it. Says the Gemara, all this that we don't force the parents. That's only true if he's not a particularly wealthy person. If he was wealthy, we would, we would force him to support the children because the biggest proof is we'd force a wealthy person to give the tzedakah. So if we force him to give the tzedakah, certainly we'd force him to give, use his charity for his own children. And the Gemara says, the Rabba Kafte, Rav Nasser Ami. Once happened, the Rabba was collecting for tzedakah. He forced Rav Nasser Ami, who's a very wealthy person, he forced him to give a lot of money to tzedakah. So the idea here is, is that, um, is, is, is that if the person is wealthy, then we'll force him for the children. So what are we coming out? That there's no real chiyav, um, there's no real chiyav to, to support the children. Uh, even after Usha, it's just that we try to get parents to do it.
All right, another takanos usha. Now we're on a tangent. Amar b'leber mishlakish b'usha is kinu. Hachamim usha made a takana. Kosev and chazalana. What happens if someone in, put in writing that all of his possessions go over to his children? He puts such a thing in writing. So what's the halacha? Now all of his assets belong to his children. Who of Ishun is on a map? But him and his wife are still sustained from them. So even though the, the children own all the property, so he doesn't have the rights to it. Chacham made a new takana that he should be supported from his former, form, from his former possessions, him and his wife. So the Gemara doesn't really understand why this is such a novelty. A person dies, his widow is sustained from his property. Meaning to say, what happens to the property after, the, after her husband dies? It's inherited by his daughter and her husband. So technically, the, the Amana shouldn't be Nizonis. Why? Why is that true? Because what happens is, is that when, 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 when an Amana is Nizonis, she only has the right to take the estate that's just sitting there, but she doesn't have the right to go take Mishubadim from properties, let's say, that were sold by the husband during his lifetime. You don't have that. So here, what happened, what, if you think about what's happening here, you, the, the, after a person dies and his property is inherited by his daughter and, and her husband, so you could say that his widow doesn't have a right to go take away from the husband and say, oh, I have a mizonah. So it shouldn't be different than the chasm But no, we made a special takana that the wife can take from the estate, even if it's inherited by the daughter and son-in-law. So if the Rabbanan said that, all the more so that he himself and his wife should be supported from the property he gave to his own children, meaning if he gave it to his own children and that was his gift, so all the more so we should assume that the Chachamim would be masaking that, uh, that he still has the right to be supported from it. He's still alive and all whoever owns it, they're his own children. They didn't spend any money to go acquire it. They just got it as a gift. It's all the more so it's, it's reasonable that the father and his wife should still have the right to take from his children. And what the Gemara is saying is, ma the widow. It's a little bit of a, it's not a precise analogy, but we're saying if even the widow, after the death of the husband, she can take from the estate that he left, even if it was inherited by his daughter and the son-in-law, so certainly if the father gave a gift to his children, so then those children should be expected to support the father and his wife from that property. And the Gemara elaborates, Shalach Ravin Biagarte. Ravan sent in a letter. Misha may somebody die. He left a widow and a daughter. The widow is sustained from the property. If the daughter marries, so now the husband is controlling the estate. The father's widow is still sustained from the property. The idea is that we don't say that the husband is like a, a purchaser, and then the halacha is that Amana doesn't get from purchaser. She doesn't collect from the chazan We don't say that. Rather, we say that this son-in-law is considered just part of the heir, a part of the Yerusha, and therefore the, the widow does take away from there. Even if the daughter then died, and now the husband is totally like the one who inherits the estate, it's all to the son-in-law. Still, Amar Vyuda Ben Shel the son of Rebbe's Rechanina's sister said, so such a thing happened to me. And they said, And the Chacham said that the father's widow is still sustained from the property. So we're basically bringing out, so now we don't understand. Once we're saying this big Chiddush, how sensitive we are to the widow that we let her take and the properties left by her husband, even if they ended up being inherited now to a daughter-in-law who died, and now it's just by the son-in-law, we still say that, that the widow can take. So certainly if someone gave a present to his children, for sure, the obligation to support him and, it, and, and his wife should still rest on them. So the Gemara explains that it is a chedesh ma'azatim. He might have thought, Hasim, the lake of the tarach. Over there, in the case of the widow, there's no one to go 
make parnasa. The husband died. It's just a widow. So we're sensitive to a widow. But in this case, the guy's around. He just gave all of his assets to his children. Let him go work for himself and for and, and for his wife and get his own food. said, No, over here, we do allow we do allow the father who gave all of his stuff to his children to still collect sustenance for him and his wife from the property. So now that here, that the man is still around, you would say maybe he's obligated to go get his own job. Kamash Malan, then no, once he gave, even though he gave the property, he's still able to uh, take sustenance from it. In this matter with Rabbi Ila, do we pass him like that? That the father who gave all the property to the children can still take sustenance from it or not? Tashmad, Rabbi standing together. Also, a person came, and he bends down. He kissed Rabbi on his foot. Why is he kissing you? This guy had such a thing where he wrote over all of his assets to his children. He had nothing to support himself. I forced them to feed him, meaning I forced the children to feed the father. So therefore, this person felt such a gratitude to Rabbi Yonason, and that's why he was kissing him. So yeah, if you say that the law is not really like Rabbi Law, then, and the children really didn't have to do that, as soon as Rabbi Yonason forced the kids, it was Lefnim Yishur And Rabbi Yonason went beyond what the letter of the law is. So therefore, this person felt this whole gratitude to Rabbi Yonason, and he was kissing him because technically the kids did not have the chiv. That's why he was kissing. That's just the halacha. Rabbi Yilah said is the basic halacha. And it doesn't really have to force him, meaning it wasn't such a favor. Rabbi Yonason then was just implementing what the basic halacha is. If he was just implementing what the basic halacha is, so then this person shouldn't have been kissing him so profusely and thanking him and, and making it like he did him the world's biggest favor. He just implemented the basic halacha. So what we see from here is that, no, the basic halacha is that they, when her father gave over all the possessions to the kids, the kids do not technically have to support. And that's why this person had such a gratitude to Rabbi Yonason for getting his kids to support him after he wrote all of his possessions to them.